I'm not sure if I need to try to preach after that. I think we've all been given plenty to think about already. Thank you very much for sharing, all of you. And we can be thankful to God that we have such a thing as a a Bible-focused camp that we can send people on and that we're able to help with some leaders as well. Steve and Kevin both went as leaders. So please do keep praying for uh, that camp. They're in several different locations. But we have been reminded about the work of God's kingdom. And Mark's, Mark's gospel tells us how Jesus Christ began his public ministry. Mark tells us his first recorded words, Jesus stood up and said, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus says the kingdom has arrived in him. He is God's chosen king. Men and women are to turn from whatever else they've been following and they are to follow him instead. In recent weeks, we've been looking at 2 Samuel, and we've noticed there that the reign of King David foreshadows the reign of King Jesus. And last week, we heard David give a very similar message to the one we've just heard from Jesus. David was anointed king by the tribe of Judah. And he sent a message to all of those who were still loyal to King Saul. He said, Saul, your master, is dead. And the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. David was saying, I'm the king now. You need to give up your old allegiance and accept me as king. Was David being arrogant when he said that? Well, no, he was being obedient to God. Years before this, David had been singled out by God for this. God told the prophet Samuel, Israel has had the king they chose, Saul. Now you're going to anoint the king I've chosen. I will give the kingdom to him, God said. And God led Samuel to Bethlehem and to a man called Jesse. And finally, to the youngest of Jesse's sons. When David stood before Samuel, God said to the prophet, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. That is what's behind David's message all these years later. He's not fighting for position for himself. He's saying to Israel, God chose me as king. Judah has recognized God's choice, and now it's your turn. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Give up your allegiance to the old king and follow God's king. That's the message. That's the invitation that goes out. But we saw last week, not everyone is willing to accept the invitation. The text that we looked at last week at the end focused on Abner. Abner is Saul's cousin. And while Saul was still alive, Abner was the commander of Saul's army. And his reaction to Saul's death 
was not to come over to David. Instead, Abner took Ishbosheth, the 40-year-old son of Saul, and Abner made him king. Instead of turning to God's king, Abner crowned a rival king. And this morning, we'll begin to see the outcome of that choice. If you haven't yet opened your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. That's page 305 in the Pew Bible and page 469 in the large print. And we'll read from chapter 2, verse 12, down to chapter 3, verse 1. Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mahanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zeruiah and David's men, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. One group sat down on one side of the pool and one group on the other side. Then Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. So they stood up and were counted 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side, and they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim. The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. The three sons of Zeruiah were there Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Now, Azahel was as fleet footed as a wild gazelle. He chased Abner, turning neither to the right nor to the left as he pursued him. Abner looked behind him and asked, Is that you, Azahel? It is, he answered. Then Abner said to him, Turn aside to the right or to the left. Take on one of the young men and strip him of his weapons. But Azahel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Azahel, Stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Azahel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Azahel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot. And every man stopped when he came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died. But Abner and Abishai pursued Abner, and as the sun was setting, they came to the hill of Amma, near Gia, on the way to the wasteland of Gibeon. There the men of Benjamin rallied behind Abner. They formed themselves into a group and took their stand on top of a hill. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your men to stop pursuing their fellow Israelites? Joab answered, As surely as the Lord lives, if you had not spoken... The men would have continued pursuing them until morning. So Joab blew the trumpet and all the troops came to a halt. They no longer pursued Israel, nor did they fight anymore. 
All that night, Abner and his men marched through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, continued through the morning hours, and came to Mahanaim. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Azahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. This is God's word. If we're going to understand what we've just read, there's something we need to know about Abner. It's a piece of information we're given later on in chapter 3. But we need, we need it if we're going to understand chapter 2. What we need to realize is Abner knows about God's promise to David. Abner is not in the dark about God's plans. Later in chapter 3 he says, The Lord promised on oath to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne forever. Why is that important? It's important because it shows us what Abner does in chapter 2 is not done naively. He knows what God has promised. But he is acting in defiance of God's promise. That's what this passage is about. And as we look at this, there are lessons here for us. There are lessons about what happens when we defy God's promise. His promise that Jesus is king. The passage begins by telling us Abner leads the man of Ishbosheth from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now I realize those are probably just names for us. So here's what's happening. Don't worry if you can't see all the details on the map. Second Samuel opens with David, with the Philistines, sorry, controlling the northern part of Israel, roughly that area. They've just won a big victory, and at the moment, they're in control. And we know from what we saw last week that David has just been crowned king in Hebron, here in the south. We know also that Abner took Ishbosheth away from all of that and crowned him king at Mahanaim, which is over there. Mahanaim is a pretty obscure place. It's across the Jordan River, and it's safely away from the action. No doubt Abner chose that spot on purpose. He didn't want his new king getting whacked straight away. But Abner knows they can't sit in the middle of nowhere indefinitely. At some point, they need to go back into Israel and try to take some territory. So that's what Abner tries to do. He takes his army to Gibeon, here. That's a journey of about 50 miles southwest from Mahanaim. Now apparently David is aware of what Abner's up to. 
he would probably have had men watching Abner. So when Abner sets off from Mahanaim, the commander of David's army, Joab, he gets word that Abner's on the move. He makes an intelligent guess as to where Abner's headed, and he arrives at Gibeon about the same time. Gibeon is only about 25 miles from Hebron. So that's the scene. We have two armies facing each other. And at this point, it begins to get a little odd. We're told they come face to face across the pool of Gibeon. Apparently, archaeologists have found a big man-made reservoir there. So this is not a puddle they're all standing around. It makes a decent barrier between these two armies. And they both sit down. What's going to happen next? Well, Abner has a plan. It's important to notice, Abner is the one instigating all of this. It was Abner who took his army to Gibeon, and Joab went there to meet him. And now, Abner proposes a way to resolve this situation. And Joab goes along with it. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. All right, let them do it, Joab said. Apparently, Abner has proposed what's called representative combat. It's not something the Israelites normally did, but we know the Philistines used this sometimes. The idea is, instead of two whole armies battering into each other, each side picked representatives to fight for them. Both armies agreed they would accept the outcome of that fight. The commanders would say to each other, if our representative loses, we'll all surrender to you. They didn't always keep to the agreement, but that was the idea. The most famous example of representative combat happened in 1 Samuel. There, Goliath, he was the Philistine champion, fought against David, who was representing Israel. On that occasion, it was a fight to the death. But it seems Abner is proposing something different here. Not only does this involve 12 men from each side instead of just one, but apparently this is not supposed to be a fight to the death. Abner says, let's have them fight hand to hand. Literally, let's have them compete. When this particular word is used elsewhere in the Bible, it's in the context of entertainment. So it seems Abner is asking for some sort of boxing or wrestling match without weapons, something reasonably harmless. Abner wants to win but he wants to win without blood, or at least without any serious blood. And Joab agrees to this, but then look how it turns out in verse 15. So they stood up and were counted 12 men for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and 12 for David. Then each man grabbed his opponent by the head and thrust his dagger into his opponent's side. And they fell down together. So that place in Gibeon was called Helkath Hazarim, which means field of daggers. 
The battle that day was very fierce. And Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. From the information we are given here, it's impossible to know how the wrestling match turned into a dagger fight. We're just not told. But what I think we can say is that the dagger fight wasn't what these two commanders had agreed to. Maybe neither side trusted the other enough to leave their daggers behind. But there's no doubt about the crucial fact here. The idea of having a bloodless war comes to nothing. There's no clear winner in the fight, so the two full armies come together. And Abner's men lose. Here's what Abner is beginning to find out. There is no middle way of defiance. Abner knows David is God's king. He knows God has promised the kingdom to David. Abner is defying God's promise and God's king. That's the reality. But Abner is trying to defy God quietly without a big fuss. First, he crowns Ishbosheth in an out of the way place, Mahanaim. Then he tries to just slide into Israel and quietly take over Gibeon. And when Joab spoils that by showing up with a whole army, Abner tries to avoid a big showdown. He still wants to win, but he tries to win with a wrestling match. But what Abner is learning is that there is no middle way of defiance. You either accept God's king or you don't. Abner is trying to defy God without attracting God's attention. He's aiming for a middle way where Abner does what Abner wants, but in such a way that God won't be too provoked by Abner's defiance. We might say Abner's trying to have his cake and eat it. And that's what many people today try to do. There are certainly some people who rage and shout against God. But that's not the way most people defy him. Many people want to resist Jesus' call to repent and believe. They want to ignore God's king and have another king, either themselves or something else, some of the idols we've heard about earlier. They want to have a different king, but they're hoping they can do it without God really noticing. Their attitude is, I'll try to keep clear of what I think are the big, noticeable sins, and hopefully God won't mind that I don't bow to Jesus. But it doesn't work that way. Quiet defiance is still defiance. And no one gets away with it. Not in the long run. Here in our passage, Abner tried to avoid all-out battle with David. But all-out battle was what happened. 
And Abner's army were not just defeated, they were badly defeated. We'll see that later. The message of the Bible is consistent. We either accept God's king or we defy him. There's no middle way. There's no acceptable way to defy him. And defiance never ends well. Verse 17 has given us the summary of how things ended at Gibeon. Now in the verses that follow, we're given more detail about Abner's defeat. We've had the result briefly in verse 17, and now we get the report of the battle. And the writer begins the report by telling us in verse 18, the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Who are these men? Well, we've already heard Joab's name. He's the commander of David's army. He's also David's nephew. He's the son of David's sister, Zeruiah. Joab is a hard and a dangerous man. He and his two brothers are fiercely loyal to David. They're three of his greatest warriors. But they also cause David no end of trouble. The sons of Zeruiah have one-track minds. They have one solution to every problem. Let's get our swords out. Let's chop a few heads off. They're violent, dangerous men. They're the kind of men you want at your side in a battle, but David soon discovers they're also uncontrollable men. Joab in particular. Overall, it's hard to decide whether Joab comes out as a plus or a minus for David's kingship. The Bible doesn't make any pronouncement about that. It simply records the details. In any case, we're told these three brothers are all involved in the battle at Gibeon with Abner and his men. And during the rout of that battle, when Abner and his men are running away, we're told that Azahel locks his attention on Abner. He sees him on the battlefield and he goes after him, doggedly, chasing him down. Abner realizes who it is. Azahel is a famous warrior and he tries to warn Azahel off once and then a second time in verse 22. Again, Abner warned Azahel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? Abner is a great warrior himself. Azahel is fast, but Abner knows he could beat him in a fight. And yet he doesn't want to. We can see that. He doesn't want to make an enemy out of Joab. Abner knows it's one thing to lead his army against Joab's army. It's a whole other level to kill Joab's brother. Abner is still trying to have his cake and eat it. He started this war, but he's still trying not to get in too deep. He tells Azahel to back off. Azahel won't, and finally Abner has no choice. He has no choice in the sense that he can't outrun Azahel anymore, but he's not going to surrender to him. 
So he kills him. He stops dead. He rams his spear backwards. Israel has no time to stop, and he impales himself on the spear. The text says it goes into his stomach and out through his back. He is not going to get up from that one. Abner has been trying ever so hard to avoid major trouble. But he's also determined to defy God's promise to David. And Abner is finding out that defiance has unavoidable consequences. Abner wanted to carry out this mission without significant bloodshed. And without making a personal enemy out of Joab. But he has failed already on both counts. We'll learn later that 360 of Abner's troops are dead. And next time we'll see how things play out with Joab. Without spoiling the story for next time, I can let you know it doesn't turn out well for Abner. But the point in all of this is not really about Joab at all. The point is, when we are determined to defy God's king, that brings unavoidable consequences. We can try to defy God without getting ourselves in too deep. But it's not possible. When we decide we can rule our lives better than God can, there will be consequences from that. Things will get broken. People will get hurt. Things will be started that last a long time. Hurt will come that lasts a long time. Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and you'll have what you need to eat and drink and wear. But human beings defy that. We say, no, I'll take care of my kingdom first. And the result of that is a world where greed rules. Millions upon millions live in extreme poverty. We heard earlier about the Ten Commandments. God says, husbands, love your wives, not someone else's wife. We say, actually, I'm going to prioritize my own lusts. And the result is a world full of broken families and desperate children. We imagine we can defy God and keep our hands clean and not hurt anyone and not get hurt. But defiance has unavoidable consequences. Back in Gibeon, Abner has just killed Israel. And that allows him to make it finally to a hilltop and rally his men. And then he shouts a bit of a silly speech from that hilltop in verse 26. Abner called out to Joab, Must the sword devour forever? Don't you realize that this will end in bitterness? How long before you order your man to stop pursuing your fellow Israelites? 
This is a silly speech from Abner because everybody knows he's the instigator of all this. Joab points that out to him in verse 27. I think the best translation there is, if you had not spoken, the men would have withdrawn this morning. In other words, don't try to put the blame on me, Abner. If you hadn't proposed your wrestling match earlier, if you'd backed out and gone home, or if you had submitted to God's king, all this wouldn't have happened. In any case, Joab decides here to let Abner go. Plenty of Israelites have died already. Joab will spare his Israelite brothers. And he'll worry about Abner another day. So Abner's still alive. But the final verses of our passage underline the fact that defiance of God's promise means defeat. Look at chapter 2, verse 30. Then Joab stopped pursuing Abner and assembled the whole army. Besides Azahel, 19 of David's men were found missing. But David's men had killed 360 Benjamites who were with Abner. They took Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb at Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men marched all night and arrived at Hebron by daybreak. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. We don't know how many men Abner had to begin with, but they are badly depleted. His army has taken almost 20 times more casualties than David's. Abner doesn't give up, though. We're told the war lasts a long time, apparently two years. So Abner can prolong the war, but he can't win. The last verse of chapter 2 reminds us why he can't win. We're told Azahel is buried in Bethlehem. That's where David's family come from. Remember, he's David's nephew, so it's not surprising he would be buried there. But this mention of Bethlehem reminds us of something else that happened there years before this. At God's command, the prophet Samuel took a horn of oil And he anointed David as king in Bethlehem. From then on, Bethlehem had a new significance. It became known as the town of David. Bethlehem is the place of God's promise. And so from now on, it really doesn't matter what great plans Abner comes up with. It doesn't really matter how good Joab is at second-guessing Abner. What matters, really, is that Almighty God made a promise at Bethlehem. And so for every Israelite, there's only one question that matters. Will I choose to defy God's promise? Or will I embrace it and bow to God's king? 
It's clear that many in Israel chose to defy the promise. They side with Abner. And they hold out for years. But they can't win. No one can defy God's promise and win. Abner and all his friends are going to end up on the wrong side of history. It's no accident at all that David was born in Bethlehem. Because God was laying a foundation for an even bigger event in Bethlehem. Around a thousand years after this, when Jesus was born, an angel made an announcement. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. We have God's promise that Jesus Christ is his Messiah. That means his anointed one. God has anointed him as Savior and Lord. And so you and I have to decide. Will we believe God's promise and bow to King Jesus? Or will we defy him and hold out against him? If we do, we will end up on the wrong side of history. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask you to help us see the lesson of history. Your kingdom will come. Your king will reign. Help us to bow to him today as our king. We ask that you will show us the foolishness of trying to live in defiance. Show us even the most quiet and polite defiance is still setting us up for a fall. And will you show us the good news too? We can turn from our defiance. We can become part of Christ's kingdom. And we thank you that his kingdom cannot fail. Amen. Let's sing in praise of King Jesus, name of all majesty.